way. Would anyone, does anyone feel courageous enough? They just want to, some picture of Jesus they want to share or call out. Jean-Louis, thank you, my friend. Um, as we are taking like a time to to think, um, come word is labab, and that labab is heart beating. And um, God shown that is every time your heart beep going labab labab labab, and how many times your heart going and beep every day million of times it will go and God show me that every time your heart beep he's saying to us to every one of us I love you 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 his love is eternal his love is unconditioned his love would not finish. That the picture is came. Thank you. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. So we, you will remember, I'm sure, when John does his doxology, his praise to Jesus in chapter one. Do you remember he says that unto him who has loved us and washed us from sin? Yeah, unto him be the glory. Is there another one? Be free. Okay, there's a couple. Great. This isn't specific to our church, but maybe church in general, just to not compromise. Um, obviously, the two-edged sword will come to judge. And I don't think we should compromise on what God's telling us. And also just guard against complacency. There's another church further on. It says, you thought you were alive, but you're dead. So sometimes you think you're doing the right things, but maybe you're not. So just don't be complacent. One more. Oh, he said, yeah. Hi. Um, I was thinking of the double-edged sword of truth and that the age we're in now, everything's topsy-turvy. Good things are called bad, bad things are called good in every area, parenting, marriage, life, work, and just how praying about that double-edged sword coming into situations and separating truth from non-truth, like you said. We need it more than ever as believers because it's easier. It's Even in the church, there's so much compromise that it's hard to know. Is he still the same? <laughs> Is the Bible still true? So we need that double-edged sword. Thank you. That's really good. I've got one more. Okay. My friend went to a conference in Bath last week and she said that the prophetic lady who was leading the conference felt very prompted to go and buy a sword. And she was like, Lord, what? An actual sword? And the Lord said, yes, buy a sword. And it was a double-edged sword and it was massive, huge, like heavy. And um, she brought it to the conference. She thought, oh gosh, you know, it's a bit weird carrying a weapon like this around. But she said, she said, the Holy Spirit said to her, people need to see the double-edged sword and they need to be reminded that my word is 
like a double-edged sword, penetrating between bone and marrow. And she invited everybody at the conference to cross over and step over this sword as a symbol of letting go of the past and entering into a new place with God. And when you said the double-edged sword, I was thinking about that and the aspect of God's character which struck me was his holiness and the awesome wonder when you described Tony, his, when you read his white hair, his feet of bronze, um, and he says, I am all-knowing and I know you. That, that just fills me with, with wonder and awe. This could go on. It's wonderful. Thank you. Now, do please use that as your meditation because, yeah, who do we meditate on? We meditate on the Word of God. We meditate on the Lord Jesus. So just going back to the letter to the Church of Ephesus, briefly, I'm just going to run through it. Um, so what do we know about Ephesus in the New Testament? Well, we actually know quite a lot because it's where Paul based his ministry for two years. And while he was there, the word of God went through the province of Asia. Extraordinary miracles happened. A great quantity of witchcraft books were burnt. Significant numbers turned to the Lord so that um, uh, the goddess Artemis and, and the silversmiths were in danger of losing their business. Um, what a time of great impact. And, and that was 30 years really before this letter so we're in, in the first century, we know Christ died around 30, 33. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was about 55, around that area. And we believe Revelation is, is about uh, AD 90. So it's, it's 30 years later, after this massive um, work, awakening of the Holy Spirit. So Ephesus was a ma the major city in Asia Minor. It was a port, it was very prosperous people coming through the city, um, and people would come and, and, and join and visit the church. And as we read the letter, um, the church leaders had to work really hard. They, they had to persevere. They had to check out lots of people that were coming into the, the ministry, the wicked people, um, People who might seek to manipulate. I don't mind running around, Charlotte, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, impure motives to draw people after themselves. People looking to take authority, claiming to be apostles. That's pretty tough to have to deal with that, isn't it? So your major city, a lot of people passing through, really uh, thriving congregation. And you've got to check everybody out. You've got to make sure that you don't kind of shut things down. But you want to make sure that people are... A kind of bringing the truth, as it were. And we, we need that today, don't we? We've been rocked, hasn't we, as church in the last decade or more. We've been rocked by church leaders, prominent positions, and uh, under testing, we've seen significant hidden flaws. Now, just to be absolutely clear, I have lots of flaws. There's a difference between flaws and hidden flaws. And it's the hidden flaws that kind of create the big issues. Um, and sadly, there's a lot of temptation when you're in a successful minister. Not so much temptation when you're not a successful minister, but there's a lot of temptation when you're a successful minister. Um, the power that goes with that, 
the attraction that goes with that. And uh, we've just seen so many very sad situations. And there are people that take people after themselves. They start something that's close to the truth and it's their thing and people follow them. So this church was doing something really right. They were checking stuff out. They were, they were testing the people. They were preserving the congregation. They were doing things really right, persevering hardships. They were not growing weary. But there's a but. There's a yet. He says, I've got this against you. That's hard, isn't it? God's got something against you. Wow, I've got this against you. Something is fundamentally important that has begun to go missing. And this is such a message for the church in every age, but it's a message for the church today. He says, you've left. You've forsaken your, your love. The love you had at first. And that's such a powerful message, isn't it? What is first love? What is first love? Well, if you're in a romantic situation, first love is just wanting to be together because that's the only place you want to be is together. It's exciting. To, to, it's a little bit reckless. Do you know, I remember when Joy was my fiancée and I used to go and visit her in a parent's house and didn't have a car at that stage. And I used to wait. She was in Brislington and I lived up in Cotton. And there was a last bus that went about 11 o'clock. And I used to wait, you know Alison here? I used to wait for the bus to go round the corner before I left. And if I kind of ran out the house and slightly jumped over the wall and run down the hill, I could catch that bus. I don't know what would happen if I'd missed it because it was the last bus. But that's first love, isn't it? It's slightly reckless. It's like... Uh, just want to be together a little bit longer. And there's something about first love when it comes to Jesus, which actually just says that. It's just, I want to be together just a little bit longer. It's always looking, for him, it, it's not looking at how much it's costing you to be a disciple. It's such a great high, isn't it? It's going for walks with Jesus just to tell him you love him. When did you last just go for a walk with Jesus and tell him you loved him? Yeah? It's like, oh, this quiet time has gone far, fast too quickly. I'll have to get up. It's like, uh, it's expectation, it's anticipation, it's just looking forward to being with him. It's looking forward to being together. It's looking forward to sharing his name. And if you notice to the church in Ephesus, he doesn't mention love, he doesn't mention faith, he doesn't mention joy. And he's saying to them, look, church, you've kind of missed the point. It's really good to test apostles. It's really good to test things out. It's really, really good. Sadly, there's a group of people's life's mission today is to kind of check everybody out. And I don't read the internet or the stuff, but there's so much stuff there telling you who's not right. And frankly, I wouldn't waste your time. I really wouldn't waste your time. Because it's far better to turn on the light and look at Jesus than to kind of switch off the darkness. And, and he's just saying to this church, it's so simple. He's saying, church, it's about me. It's about me.
And I want you to turn around and I want you to remind yourself to do the deeds you did at first. What was that deeds at first? He doesn't say, but maybe it's a bit more joy and praise and, and, and more quiet times with Jesus. Maybe it's more excitement making him known. But he says, repent and do the deeds you did at first. Otherwise, I am going to take the lampstand out of its place. What does that mean to take the lampstand away? What would that mean for a church to take the lampstand away? Hmm? Yes, there would be a separation, but particularly the light, lampstand is that cause of light. It's the inspiration and work of the Holy Spirit amongst the people. It's the promptings, it's the revelation. See, when you're seeing and we worship together, the lampstand means that you see more of Jesus when you do that. When somebody speaks, and I hope it's happening today, you feel a tug on your heart. I want to spend more time with Jesus. When you fellowship, there's something rich sharing Jesus. The tragedy would be that if the lampstand was removed and they didn't notice it had happened. That would be the tragedy, because they just carried on doing everything that they were doing, and they were so busy doing. So when we worship... It's not the mechanics of the worship. It's the person of the worship that's really important. When we speak, it's not the mechanics of the sermon. It's the, it's the tug on your heart that says, I'm is pulling you towards him. When you fellowship, it's him being the center. And we must allow for this when we speak, when we worship, when we fellowship. We must be open to Jesus is he that's the prophetic spirit that's the spirit the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy Holy Spirit only speaks about Jesus to glorify him never glorifies us that's what he wanted back in the church and then he says, you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, very quickly, uh, God hates things. <laughs> Do you hate things? God hates things. I, this is quite remarkable, isn't it? Surely God doesn't hate things. Yeah, he does. But actually, this church also hated it. Isn't that really good? You, church, hate it. That's great, because I hate it too. But it doesn't tell us what it was that... That, that he hated, other than the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, little clue in the name. Who knows if it's right or not. What does Nike mean? Yeah, well done. You listened. What does laite, uh, the laity, what does that mean? The laity. The people. Sadly, most of the church differentiate the priest from the laity. I don't think the Bible does. So, Nicolation might mean it might mean people that conquer, it might mean conquering of the people, which is exactly what happened in the church, wasn't it? We had a hierarchy with a pope and archbishops and bishops. It might be that he hates that. Might be. 
And people came in, and Paul and Peter wrote the same thing. He said, you know, that the elders do not lord it over the flock of God, but they are, they are shepherds. So we know God hates things. There's seven things that God hates in the book of Proverbs. He hates haughty eyes. He hates lying tongues. He hates heart that shed innocent blood. He, help, he hates a heart that devises wicked schemes. He hates feet that, uh, that rush to do evil. He hates false witnesses, and he hates people that stirs up trouble between the brothers. So God hated the deeds of the Galatians, but, but we're not quite sure what they are, but he hated them, and the church hated them too, which is great. And the promise, just to conclude, the promise of the overcomer was to eat from the tree of life. Let's, let's stand and pray. Lord God, we thank you. This is your church. The church is your church, Lord. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And we want and we pray for you to have it back. And I think that's what God was saying to the church at Ephesus. He says, do not, you've, you've, lost, you've lost that spark of love. Love for me, love for the brothers, love for the world. Turn around. Go back to that spark, that first love. Go back to that time when you just couldn't get enough of me. Go back to that time when being together as brothers and sisters was such a delight. Go back to that time when reading my word was not a burden but a joy and a privilege. Go back to that time when praying was just breathing in my presence. Go back to that time when you love me without thinking. Go back to that time. Lord, stir that up in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name. Just pray for all of my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that we'll take the word of God and, and uh, let it work in our hearts, I pray. Amen.